Welcome to the Potion Podcast, your raw look at the hospitality industry, brought to you by SHC. This week's episode is proudly sponsored by Bar Green Ellington for all your restaurant and bar needs. Visit bargreen.com for the full portfolio. What is happening, Post Shifters? Welcome back to another episode of the Post Shift Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Sean Sewell. Um, we're talking to a distiller today, which we don't usually talk to distillers very often. Usually once every six weeks or so, we'll have a, a distiller pop up on my schedule. And um, this one's a fun one because I work so closely with so many distillers here in uh, BC in regards to making spirits and that sort of thing. Um, we're going to be talking to someone on the other coast of the US um, from Bar Hill Gin, uh, Ryan Christensen, and his whole company is based around honey and it's scaled as well because it's a substantially sized distillery and so we're really going to get into bees and honey because honey poses a whole bunch of issues when it comes to using as a raw ingredient so i want to welcome ryan hey sean thanks for having me thank you for being here i'm really curious about your story because um scaling to the to the uh, you're not a you're still not a big distillery but even scaling to the size that you are when it comes to using honey as a raw ingredient is it, i'm curious at the the problems it posed as you started and then did you when you first started caledonia when you started looking into bar hill and and the the honey based spirit stuff what drew you to the honey well so so you know we were started by by a fellow named Todd Hardy, and Todd is actually a lifelong beekeeper. So, you know, my my history is actually on the from a from a beer brewing background, and um, you know, I'm I'm really more of a home brewer whose home brewing hobby is kind of run out of control. But you know, eventually <laughs> it, it led me to distilling. But uh, you know, my decision to get into distilling was when I met Todd. You know, just seeing his connection with the bees and just his love for for farming and agriculture, and sort of this this interesting challenge that. Uh, that honey poses, you know, in, in, in the distilling space. And, um, not to mention all the fun variables you get to play with, with, um, producing spirits. So the whole idea of working with and for Todd was just, you know, completely exciting to me. And, um, and, uh, so here we are. Had you ever made like mead or anything like that when you were doing your, your brewing, your brewing yeah. fascination? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there really wasn't a lot that I hadn't played with from a fermentation okay. standpoint, you know, I mean, even like kimchi and kombucha and, <laughs> You know, I was just really geeking out. I mean, I, I, I eventually started a homebrewing store. So I was, you know, spending most of my time educating people on the products that I carried in the store. But of course, in order to educate people on the products you carry, you have to use them. Mm -hmm. So that, that had me going very wide in regards to, you know, my fermentation hobbies, which eventually outgrew my Burlington apartment. Um, <laughs> You know, but, if it had fermentable it, sugars, you were going to ferment it. <laughs> it. It felt like a good idea, but you know, I really fell in love with this idea of um, fermentation as sort of food and agricultural preservation. You know, this idea of like giving shelf life to raw materials that you know come from the farm, and you know, like we often think of fermented beverage and distilled beverage as sort of a reason to throw a party. You know, but it's so much more than that. I mean, you know, it's it's about preserving the food so you can get through the cold, hard winter. Mm -hmm. And land on the other side and um actually you know distilling is really just just kind of the final tier of that preservation you know, you're giving you're giving forever as a, as a shelf life to the spirits that you're working with and you started in 20 you started distilling uh honey and everything in 2011 correct correct was there anyone else doing distill i'm trying to think back to 2011 and i can't think for the life of me of anyone who was distilling honey or sort of going after that that process anywhere in North America at that time? 
not much. Um, there, there were some some folks um, out in New York. Um, I'm forgetting the name, but associated with a with a meadery, mm -hmm. um, and and we were also associated with a meadery. You know, Todd is a lifelong beekeeper. Um, eventually, opened up a small meadery, and when I met Todd, that's uh, that was the core of the operation. It was a, a, a mead facility, and he had hopes of opening a distillery. And um, you know, I actually said to Todd, I, I I can't learn both at the same time. And this this distilling thing is incredibly fascinating. And mm -hmm. and you know, Todd Todd seemed to have have uh, have faith that I wouldn't wouldn't screw it up. And and uh, we we canceled the meadery. Um, we sold oh. the corker, sold all the you know anything that we could sort of you know convert into cash that we could invest in building a safe distillery and. Uh, we really went for it. We started out with a just a tiny little, you know, 15 gallon direct fire still. I mean, that was ultimately all we had from a distilling standpoint, um, but that's all we really needed. You know, that was enough to keep the batch size small and really dial it in. So what it, what are the big, so we were talking off in the green room and I was saying that uh, I've worked with a couple of distilleries and I know that we have a fair few distilleries here in BC that are honey based. And I know that they had massive issues with just the, trying to as you like saying off off camera like transporting honey moving honey into tanks it doesn't move the same way as other liquids do what were the big like oh shit i've screwed up sort of moments when you first started doing this um back I mean, in the day it, it was endless i mean you know moving honey is the big thing we, we have a commitment to keeping honey raw you know never heating it above the temperature of the hive which is you know 90 to 100 degrees and, and that's very important to us. I mean, that's really where all the flavor of the raw honey comes from. That's why we're able to, you know, create a, a, a gin with such botanical depth is because that botanical depth lives within that raw honey. And as soon as you apply heat, you've destroyed it. So, you know, we really as distillers have a fairly easy job as long as we don't screw up what the bees have created for us. And so, you know, when we transport honey, I mean, we started out with a shovel and a paint paddle and a drill and just trying to dilute it with water but you know you're, you're you're shoveling out of a drum you know so just truly backbreaking work and you know sticky honey goes everywhere of course and um you know that that creates some real challenges but the um the most important piece here that to understand with, with the challenges of raw honey though is is the health of the hive you know and and sort of the challenges the bees are facing you know long before that honey even comes into this distillery We've got an incredible journey just to make sure that those bees are well cared for, you know, colony collapse. I mean, the list is unfortunately incredibly long of the challenges that the bees are facing themselves. Um, yeah, so we look at it as we want to use raw honey because it's the right thing to do. It's, it's part of our DNA. It's where Todd comes from. Um, but ultimately, our food systems depend on it. You know, beekeepers, you know, making a living, taking care of the bees, keeping pesticides out of the process of raising bees is, is crucial for all of us. So when it comes to honey, and usually when you do grains and stuff, grain doesn't usually change flavor profile-wise season to season. Do you have to do some in-depth sort of tasting and, and tweaking when it comes to every big batch of honey that comes into the distillery? Because there's got to be significant variances between flavor profile when it hits the, hits the distillery. Yeah, absolutely. So, so um, that's where vodka comes into play. Vodka is, is a beautiful... Um, pairing to, to our work with gin, you know, you, you have this, this incredible varying, you know, sort of as you, as you coast through the season um, and the flavors of the honey are going to be very different throughout. You know, our goal is to try to create some level of consistency within the gin. Um, but with vodka, it's the opposite. Quite frankly, vodka is a category that needs a little bit of character. Mm -hmm. So we take those outer edges of seasonality 
and bring it into our vodka program. So behind me is our, our vodka still, um, which it, it's a perfect pairing, you know, because the amount of honey that needs to go through this still just to produce a small amount of 190 proof uh, vodka is, is enormous. Let's talk about that. What sort of yields are we talking? How much you gain, how much honey you gain into the distillery and then how much go, how much spirit goes out? Yeah. So it's a hard question to answer because all the honey that comes in goes to multiple products. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we're buying uh, over a hundred thousand pounds of raw honey per year from, from a handful of, of family farms, which is very impactful, you know, for the farmers, of course, because, you know, one, we pay a fair price, which is, which is crucial. Um, but they also help us, you know, they help us with payments, you know, we spread out payments so that they're not getting that kind of seasonal burst. Um, so, so it helps us pay for the honey, helps them sort of business plan on a year round basis. Um, but most importantly, keeps beekeepers with the bees. Right? These, these beekeepers that are running, you know, fairly large apiaries at this point, they're not having to go out to the farmer's market and focus on packaging and, and all those, you know, packaging sales, marketing, all those mm -hmm. things that are you know, kind of hard to do when you've got that amazing skill set of, you know, speaking to and keeping the bees. So our partnerships have really worked well for all of us because we can depend on the honey coming into the distillery. They can depend that there's a buyer ready to take it. And, um, you know, that, that works well. Most of our, our raw honey, you know, is split between uh, gin production and vodka production. Um, our gin is not a honey based. It's sweetened with raw honey. So mm. we use significantly less total honey to go into the into the gin. What we're doing with gin is really celebrating the botanical flavors that are you know, within that honey. Our vodka is a 100% honey base. So it takes, a, you know, each fermenter, 1800 gallons, you know, is producing or re requiring about, you know, 3000 pounds of raw honey, you know, per batch. Wow. Um, That's a substantial it's, amount of honey. It's a, it's a fair amount of honey. Yeah. Now what, what uh, you've scaled, you know, eight years, you went from opening to the, the big new facility in 2019, um, as you can see behind, like, um, how different is the, I've got a quick question off to the side here about vacuum distillation. You don't vacuum distillate, you do a much more um, classic style pot and column still, yeah? Yeah, correct. It's a great question. We don't vacuum distill. So when I said we keep the honey raw, we keep it raw through fermentation, mm -hmm. um, you know, but then for, for our vodka, it is cooked. It's not a vacuum still. We are, we are at a high temperature. Mm -hmm. And so with the scaling of it, was there any concerns ever of how you're going to keep up with this, the ethos of honey going forward? Because as we, as we talked about earlier, like you want a big distillery, like a, a, you're a medium sized distillery, but with you doing that sort of production and Bar Hill's massive success, um, are there, are there concerns and hurdles that you're looking for in the future of production as well as like sourcing of honey and that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, 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 you know, all of our growth has been very organic, you know, we're really not, not, not pushing. I mean, to be honest, we're, we're incredibly honored, you know, the, the, the conversations that surround the brand and, and surround sort of the work of the brand, you know, we often think, you know, we're, we're, we're distillers of conversation, you know, we're really trying to make sure that people are having conversations that lead them back to important decisions they're making in their life. So, you know, when you ask a bartender, you know, or when a bartender asks you rather, you know, what are you having to drink? You know, that's actually a pretty important conversation. It's an important question because if you just say, give me whatever you're serving and you don't know sort of the supply chain of that product, you know, or how those materials kind of come together, you know, you don't know the farmer's livelihood. You don't know, you know, that the employees are paid fair wages. You don't know that all the materials are responsibly sourced. And, you know, quite frankly, you know, Bar Hill is far from perfect. You know, no, there's no perfect company out there. And I think, our goal is to really start the conversation to open up those doors 
so that we can all influence the industry that's just absolutely full of flaws, you know, in mm -hmm. regards to supply chain, where everything's coming you know, from, greenhouse gas emissions, you know, what are we actually measuring when we talk about greenhouse gas emissions? You know, those are the sort of conversations that, you know, as a country, you know, or as a continent, we're, we're really just beginning to even have the conversation, much less impact actual change. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, like when we talk about the supply chain of grain and to distilleries everywhere across, everywhere, actually, across the world, a lot of the times people have no idea where that grain comes from on a consumer level. Right. Right. Like on the consumer yeah. level, like most people don't know that most Scotch whiskey is made from French grain or like grain from Europe. And yeah. so this, these conversations, and I think uh, the pandemic sort of helped those because everybody's had supply chain issues. Absolutely. I mean, honestly, when I met Todd and we started talking about raw honey, you know, it was, you know, it sort of had me reflecting on my own brewing career. You know, mm -hmm. I was very much less focused on where the grain came from, um, maybe, maybe focused on the country it came from, but I wasn't looking any deeper. You know, really mm -hmm. wasn't scratching the surface of the agricultural practice of the grain that I was using. And, you know, suddenly I meet a, a beekeeper who's, you know, got an amazing family and partnership of other beekeepers. And I'm thinking, you know, this, this is really where we want to be. You know, I want to work with, you know, we now work with a local burdock farmer down the street from us. And he's, he's you know, commercially cultivating burdock root and we're making spirits from it. I mean, if we can actually build a brand from the burdock root, and if you don't know what burdock is, it's, it's, largely known as a pest you mm -hmm. know, it's the it's the plant that kind of sticks to your dog and sticks to your shoelaces and drives you crazy but the root of the burdock is one of the most incredible flavors you know growing mm -hmm. here in the northeast and if we can actually create a product from harvesting what we thought was a weed crop you know and, and take that out to to a city like new york or chicago that's a pretty powerful conversation that ultimately is going to come back to a family of farmers so Bar Hill is probably the most like the most popular, most famous uh, product that's coming out of the distillery right now. Is that about right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, how did how did the the success of that sort of lead um, the direction of the company and that sort of scalability? Because I, I do see like uh, craft distilling in, in Canada is still very small, very like infant in the scale of what it is. Some distillery has been around for like 10, 15 years, but they're still nowhere to the scale of the sort of size you are. Um, when it came to Bar Hill, were you surprised at the acceptance and sort of push it had? Yeah, I mean, you know, focus is hard, right? It, it's, it's an intentional effort to focus. I mean, ultimately, you know, like the, the, the burdock route, you know, it could be argued that's a, that's a bit of a distraction, but, you know, we've, we've had to sort of build framework here in our operation mm -hmm. to make sure that we're allowed to be creative, allowed to take new paths, you know, and, and we, we actually call that program experiments in agricultural rectification. And the goal there is to make sure that we're out and about meeting farmers, you know, learning about their challenges, learning what's being grown, bringing it back to the distillery and experimenting with it, because that kind of feeds our soul. Um, but then at the same time, in, in this space, this is where we're producing, you know, we're running three 300 gallon stills every day of the week, trying to keep up with the demand for Bar Hill. And that takes a, a rigid amount of focus and, and just mm -hmm. attention to detail. And we've got to, you know, do that same thing over and over and over and make sure that we're, you know, continually making this gin taste better and, uh, you know, monitoring that, uh, that um, quality control. So they're very different, but they're, they, they hinge on each other. Um, but it was an intentional effort for sure. You know, we recognized, you know, and this, this came early on, we're out in the market, selling gin and there were just so many conversations about you know hey if i buy your gin will you sell me your whiskey when it's aged 
And you know, that sort of conversation in itself, I think, is 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 a bit problematic. You know, I, I call it the gin apology. You know, there, <laughs> there's a lot of craft distillers out there saying, "Buy my gin, and someday I'll have aged brandy or or whatever it might be." And you know, ultimately, we want to sell gin with no apologies attached to it. You know, we're really proud of the gin that we're producing, and anybody buying our gin, hopefully wants a great experience with gin and we can talk about whiskey later when, when it's aged have you put down some whiskey we are yeah I'm, I'm doing a whiskey mash today actually but uh we so todd um is also a certified organic grain grower um he in 2015 todd todd sold the company to to me and a couple of partners um and, and i'm able to to own the majority of the company which is which i'm really grateful for and todd really wanted to be on the farm and um, so he's now a certified organic grain grower in uh, Greensboro, uh, which is where the Bar Hill, you know, the actual mm-hmm. hill, the nature preserve lives. And, um, and he's growing certified organic rye, which we now bring into the distillery. And uh, nice. it's very small, small scale. It's kind of a hobby, you know, at this point. Um, but it gives us a, we do Friday mashes. And every Friday we, we just get our hands, you know, covered in rye grain and flour and, and, and make a batch of whiskey. Is it one of those things that every day you come in wanting to make whiskey and then it's like, oh man, I gotta make more gin. I have a friend who has a, a very popular gin here in BC and he's like, I wanna make whiskey and every day I come in and on the board, on the on the distilling board is like, make these batches of gin today. And you're like, oh, all yeah. I want to do is come in and make whiskey today. Gin, gin happens every day, no questions <laughs> asked. You know, that, that that goes without saying. But but you know, I mean we call it mash therapy. It's just to be honest, it's it's a bit of a an exhale of the week and a, uh, you know, sort of, you know, Scott and I, he's, Scott's our lead distiller and Scott and I get here at, you know, five o'clock in the morning and we just, just make whiskey and it's, it's a good time. Sometimes swear words are said and <laughs> you, you know, the doors are wide open. It, it's, it's a nice time of day. So I got a question. Um, are there government incentives for dealing with locally sourced agricultural products? Um, How's the government work with a lot of craft distilleries like yours? Not, not so much here in Vermont, not yet anyway. You know, New York, New York State has done a lot of work with that. You know, Ralph Lorenzo in Tuthill Town, you know, they really led mm-hmm. the charge. And you, I, I, I have to give total credit. New York's, you know, the Farm Distillery Act. I'm, I'm, I may have the name wrong there, but they, they, they've really done an incredible job. Um, there's not, there's not as much here in the state of Vermont, not yet anyway. But I, I think, I think we'll get that happening. I mean, ultimately. The farm and the cocktail bar should not be so far apart. You mm-hmm. know, it's it, the plate of food. It's so understood where that food comes from. And it's so important that we know and we know what questions to ask. and We know what conversations are driving. But it's often this plate of beautiful food that came right off the farm. And then just, you know, give me whatever you're pouring behind the bar. Mm-hmm. And I think the same level of conversation needs to happen with the drink itself. Because the agricultural opportunity of spirits, I mean, this still behind me, Phyllis, you know, is very hungry. I mean, it takes a tremendous amount of rye grain to produce a very small amount of rye whiskey. Mm-hmm. You know, that has a huge impact on, on, on that farmer that's growing that, that rye whiskey. And similarly, the, the, the financial pressures on farmers these days to get a good yield almost instantly runs back to environmental challenges, right? Mm-hmm. The use of, of pesticides and fertilizers in an irresponsible way is, is really plaguing the land. And, you know, if we can, it, it's, a, it's a large amount of impact distillers can have as long as, you know, bartenders and distillers are having this conversation and making sure that it's, it's relaying back and appreciated, you know, for the farmer. How many distilleries are in Vermont? I think there's about 20 distilleries. Okay. You know, so it's, it's, small it's, state. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, true. Vermont only has 600,000 people in the entire state. So, oh, wow. You know, when, wow. when COVID hit, we, we were we were all saying, wow, six feet, that's that's awfully close for, uh, <laughs> for the state of Vermont. <laughs> so how did things change for you at the distillery? Did you slow down or did you find that uh, the retail market picked up? Because I know a lot of uh, retail stores and a lot of brands really broke budgets just in their retail market in comparison with on-premise and restaurants and bars closing down. How did that affect uh, the distillery overall and your company? I mean, it was, it was, it was a huge change, you know, um, ultimately it did, it did make us far busier. Um, but initially a huge percentage of our business is, is with restaurants, you know, that mm -hmm. was, and, 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 you know, really when we're out in market, we're spending most of our time, you know, in and around restaurants and having conversations with bartenders. So, you know, the, the, the damage that the restaurant industry, you know, saw and, and continues to suffer from was just a, an enormous just hit to our business model and the way our team operates and, and, and all of that. Um, that said, the retail business did spike considerably. And, you know, we had to shift substantially, you know, to be honest, we never really advertised at all. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a little bit of local advertising and whatnot. But suddenly we said, wait a second, we can't pour gin anymore. You know, we can't come in contact. I mean, normally this sort of conversation would happen in person and I'd have a bottle of gin and I'd pour mm -hmm. you some and say, what do you think? But that couldn't happen anymore. And we had to figure out how to advertise. And that was something this team really hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about. And um, and we didn't we didn't go crazy with it, but we took some of, you know, sort of the, the travel budget and, and said, maybe, maybe if we can start to advertise on social media, at least we're speaking directly with the people mm -hmm. that are consuming the, the product, and um, and I guess that worked. You know, I mean, we're 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 far busier than we were before the pandemic. We've maintained a really, um, you know, a level of growth that's been hard to keep up with in here. That's oh, good to hear. When it comes to awards, um, I know that you're one of the most awarded gins of all. Is he having some fun with some barrels back there? Sorry, Devin's filling up some <laughs> barrels right now. <laughs> Um, with being one of the most awarded gins in, uh, in the U S um, what, how do you take that? How, when you, when these things come over your desk and you obviously you're still on, on the floor, still making everything by hand and from scratch and like still got your hands dirty, then you get like a double gold and that sort of thing. How does that, uh, make you feel? I mean, it, it, it's it's always rewarding. You know, we, we, we love the recognition. I mean, it's, it's 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 meaningful. You know, I mean, the whole team feels it. You know, it's not just me or Devin or Scott. You know, or Ron. You know, it's it's a team wide effort. You know, any any sort of gold medal needs to be appreciated at every single corner of the business, mm -hmm. and so we try to celebrate it that way. Um, you know, to be honest, COVID was such a, a challenge on this team. You know, we pivoted to hand sanitizer like so many other distillers and. We went through this, this, you know, I mean, 2020 in general was just such an emotional year for everybody. And just, you know, just things like showing up to work was really hard to do some days. And this team kind of glued together through all of that. But the real, um, the one that we'll forever remember was, you know, late in 2020 after going through such a hard year. But we just kind of hunkered down and focused on, on making the gin taste better. And then we got the 100 point score which is, you know, the world's first ever perfect score. And we, we couldn't believe it. I mean, we had, we, we, we did not expect it, but you know, we got that score and we literally, we joked about, we can't even give each other high fives, you know, <laughs> we're, we're celebrating and we, you know, we're virtually celebrating. We're in person across the room, but 
you know, we were literally jumping for joy saying this is, this is a you know, special moment. With everything scaling and everything getting back to normal, as we say, um, what is the plan for the next uh, six to 12 months? Um, are you available across the US? Are you looking for availability across the Canada into the rest of the world? Uh, not, not yet. Uh, maybe at some point, you know, we do sell to the SAQ, you know, Montreal. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, um, we're, we're available in about 33 states here in the US. And that's a lot of geography. You know, we, we, we also do a little bit of special order work in, in various other countries, you mm-hmm. know, a little bit of work in, in Hong Kong and uh, Denmark and some, some, you know, just cool cities that we enjoy. But the, um, generally, we'd like to keep our focus. You know, we're, we're still focused here in Vermont. Even these, these 600,000 Vermonters, you know, they, they drink a lot of gin. So, we're, <laughs> you know, we're, we're pretty focused. We've, we, we've gone far and wide enough at this point and, um, we just want to make sure that we're getting into the place. You know, it's really mm-hmm. important that we're actually understanding the communities we're selling gin to, um, just just like we try to understand our own community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the SAQ is an interesting one. They pick up the weirdest things. Like Quebec just picks up the weirdest things, and you're like, "But why is this available here, and no one else in Canada has it?" <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we're we're not that far from Montreal. You know, it's just yeah. a couple hours, but you've got this this Canadian border and, you know, Todd, when I, you know, in our early days, he used to always joke, he, he used to keep bees right along the Canadian border. And he said it was the best place to keep bees. And, um, but he'd always make the joke, you know, I think that, I think the bees may have actually crossed the border without permission. Today. <laughs> um, with Bar Hill being the big focus and, and I know that's your big focus. What, what other things are you working on? I know we talked about your rye whiskey going forward. Like what new products are we looking at, uh, seeing coming out of, uh, Caledonia in the next little while? Yeah, definitely rye whiskey. We've, we've got some barrels, uh, you know, you know, turning, you know, four and five years old, which is mm. really exciting. You know, something we've been working really hard on. That's a much longer than four or five year project. You know, Todd, you know, had to pick the stones out of the field and, you know, plant the rye. I mean, it's just been a, a really long journey, you know, both on the farm and in, in the distillery. Um, you know, we, we also work with, with, uh, maple farmers, you know, I, I have, a. Mm chunk of land my backyard is is pretty rural and, and i've got a couple thousand maple trees there so we work with the uh, I, I don't tap them myself i just don't have the time or the equipment but i work with a local maple producer uh, kevin farnham and, um, and his family and they make maple syrup from from you know the sap within mm-hmm. the trees that are on you know my land and uh, so we make vodka from that we love to start barrel aging some of those distillates um and then you know we we're in apple country, you know, this is really an interesting place to, to, to grow apples. So, um, you know, we, we haven't really gone down that path too far, but our, our experimental project allows us to just do very, very small batches of really anything that feels worthy of experimentation. Mm-hmm. Um, but the burdock project has really captured the attention of the team. It's, it's amazing. We didn't realize, you know, when you start harvesting things from the ground, you know, there's just this earthy, really kind of deep uh woodsy characteristic that's that's it's hard to find in distilled spirits and honestly it's it's um it's sort of these oily characteristics that you'd only find in like an agave product and Mm. we've we've sort of just figured out that we can actually access flavors like that but here in you know the northeast in this region so um, that one's got the attention of you know all of our bartenders on the team all of our distillers we're all just kind of glued to that product right now are you using it as an infusion or are you actually fermenting the burdock? Fermenting, distilling. Really? 
Yeah. When you start yeah. talking about Burdock, all I could think of is like I've seen I've done Burdock infusions and stuff like that in the past, but like actually fully mashing and then fermenting it. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's not an easy one to work with. No. It, it, sometimes it makes honey look easy. You know, it's it's yeah. it's fibrous and um we've we've had a real challenge just trying to figure out what equipment to kind of crush it down and, and um it actually once it goes through the whole process, sometimes it'll end up with these long fibers that have tangled yeah. together. It's almost like rope. I mean, you could you could almost you know like you know like garden twine or something mm -hmm. like that, um, but the flavor is just incredible. It, it's like nothing I've ever seen before, wow. and um, you know we're we're I, we've barely scratched the surface on this. To be honest, I think there's 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 something really interesting here that we need to like, you know, we need a little more time with. How big is the burdock root? Uh, they're quite large, you know. Like yeah. like if if you go find wild burdock, you know, if you pluck up the plant you'll find you know probably six eight inch roots usually depending on 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 the actual plant um but these guys they're cultivating a specific type and they grow they almost look like a like a like a stretched out turnip or something you know okay. they're, they're they're probably oh 16 to 24 inches long sometimes all the way down to and a lot of what we're buying is usually kind of the uglier stuff mm -hmm. you know the, the the pretty stuff goes to market and everybody likes to buy it um the still doesn't really care what it looks like you know just we just want to know that there's carbohydrates there so the um a lot of times we'll get the things that look kind of like a hand or you know <laughs> shot off into you know kind of like the ugly carrots from the garden that's 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 what this will look like i feel sorry for the person that has to jump in your stills and clean them in between each of one of these crazy batches like get used to honey but then you're gonna do burdock and then you're gonna chuck some maple in there and <laughs> we try to separate the the, the system <laughs> none, none of the burdock goes in the gin stills that's that's a that's a solid rule is there maple, a lot of maple, because going back to the maple, is there a lot of maple spirits out there, especially in Vermont? Because obviously people know Vermont and... Yeah, there's a few. There's a few. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of maple syrup here. You know, this is, <laughs> we, we are, we're drowning in maple syrup, basically. So, um, you know, there, there's a few. There's some other folks down in Quichi, uh, Vermont Spirits. They make great vodka from maple, mm -hmm. uh, good friends of ours. Um, I think some other folks are using maple as like a sweetener for like a bourbon type product. Um we're interested in, in in potentially getting into some of the lower proof, bigger flavor kind of distillate. Mm -hmm. But to be honest, with the simple sugars of maple, we haven't really found enough structure to to um, nothing's gone to market, and quite honestly, nothing's really been terribly successful yet. But you know, it's it's um, I, I'd love to see a blend of sort of these. I'm fascinated by the idea of just tree sugars in general. You know, mm -hmm. just, just I mean, you're talking about you know, 100, 200 year old trees and, and, you know, the sap that flows out of there. There, there, there's something to that. So, which is why we have this experimental side of the business that allows us to kind of push those edges. Cause you know, if we can't come up with something there, then, you know, we, we can't call ourselves Vermonters. So let's talk, I, want, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but like, let's just talk about a little bit of the entrepreneurial side of things. Cause obviously we've talked a lot about the creative side of things and, I think in our line of work, creativity and business have you sort of have to force yourself to be mm -hmm. one or the other. If you're business minded, you have to figure out how to like tap into the creativity of the your partner or the people you have. And if you're super creative, you're very rarely thinking about okay, how am I going to keep the lights on for the next little while? How have you balanced that off in your career? Because obviously, talking from the very beginning, you were big in the brewing and fermentation and fermenting anything home brew store, that sort of thing. And then the business has scaled over the last decade to really good proportions. How have you balanced that out on a, on a career level for business first passion? It, it, it's, 
it's something I still struggle to, to balance, to be honest. You know, it's, it's, I do enjoy both sides of the business. Um, I think that's what the MASH Therapy Friday is all about. You know, it, it's, it's, you've got to keep your hands dirty. And, um, you know, I also, I dropped out of business school to open a homebrew store, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I, I think, you know, I've been fortunate in that my hobby has led to business and, and, you know, I really enjoy um, kind of looking behind the curtains of all corners of the business because it's, it's, it's a fascinating, you know, the free tier system in, in the U S mm-hmm. you know, it's, mm. it's, it's something that you really need to understand. But at the end of the day, the most important part for me is, is the relationships that are built in the process, you know, mm-hmm. building a team is a really rewarding project for me because, you know, I don't really have, you know, any sort of corner of this business that I do better than anybody else, mm-hmm. but there's somebody in that seat, fortunately, that, that, you know, is, is doing that job that I probably used to do. And they're probably doing a better job than I am in, in taking it further. So, you know, my role has evolved from sort of literally doing the work and probably doing a pathetic job with it to finding somebody that can really take that over mm-hmm. and own it. And, and my job now is to just make sure they have the tools and the communication tools and, and the forum uh, to speak freely to, uh, to make sure that we as a team are, are driving in the same direction. And that's an evolution over the last mm-hmm. eight years. That has just been a fast moving train that I, I think some days I feel like I'm I'm at the front of it charging forward and other days I'm um, somewhere in the middle and then there's days where I'm at the end, but the team is is glued together to the point that the train keeps moving, mm-hmm. you know, every single day. That was a good finish. Can we please get t-shirts saying MASH Therapy Fridays? Yeah, please? that's a great can idea. We, can we please get t-shirts and I need yeah. some t-shirts and I'm looking forward to being able to travel again. I really love to come and come and visit the distillery on the East coast when I get a chance, uh, once all this, we're still not allowed to fly in Canada. So we've still got a few, few more months before we are allowed to do that. But, uh, thank you so much for your time, Ryan. That was awesome. I, uh, it's just an awesome story. And I know how much, how hard honey production and honey distillation is from working with some distilleries. And, uh, I commend you on that one. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me. And uh, I I look forward to your visit. Thanks for listening, Pose Shifters. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I really enjoy sitting down with friends and peers and uh, just chatting about the industry and getting down to the nuts and bolts of what's really going on out there. Uh, Make sure you like, subscribe, comment, everything on all the platforms. Just hit it up and I'll do my best to answer any queries or questions you have. I'll see you next week, guys. Bye.